Hi, Hannah. Hey, Anna. Hey, so we've been talking about our identities as writers for a while now. I think it's time to do our podcast. That's a great idea, but what should we call it? Hmm. How about how about a play on the pen is mightier than the sword? Like the pen is that, that's it. The pen is. The pen is so many things. It's scary, it's honest, it's funny, and the pen lets us explore what it means to be a work in progress. <laughs> and hey, Hana, we are a work in progress. You said it. Let's get started. Okay. So I guess, I don't know how much more you wrote as to compare to last time we went over your story. Um, I don't know if it's, if it's too long to recite uh, or, or tell me. So, okay, I'm just looking um, to see where, let's see. I ended up probably writing um, maybe a third more. Okay. And I even went back and added some stuff toward the beginning, um, kind of based on what you and I had talked about. So yeah, it ended up being, gosh, like four and a half single space pages, five. Great. Look at you. So, um, yeah. So you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, um, so I'd, I'd really been inspired at the beginning and then you and I talked last time and I told you how frustrated I was because <laughs> I just didn't know how to end it. <laughs> and it was such a um, contrast to the previous story I'd done where basically from the start, I knew exactly what the bones of the, of the narrative were gonna be. And I knew, you know, the, the kind of central thread of, of how things took place and would end. And with this, it was more, I had this spark at the beginning to inspire me. And then I had to, and then I wrote and wrote and then realized I had no idea where I was going with any of this. <laughs> so it was helpful to talk with you last time. You know, we talked um, about the, um, you know, it, the fact that sometimes um, being alone but surrounded by other people can be just as terrifying or um or difficult as it can be to be truly alone and so you know i changed it so that rather than just being about a girl and her dog there there was sort of this pale imitation of family they're not super involved none of none of the characters have names um there's no dialogue but they are present throughout the story now. Um, and yet there's kind of this like curtain between the girl and her family where um, her own fears and anxieties around encountering this creepy looking monkey toy um, and her own reaction to encountering the toy keep her from confiding in others. And therefore she ends up really, you know, kind of isolated and um, doubting her own sanity. Um, and so that sort of sensation of being alone with, alone in the midst of a crowd or alone in the midst of a family and how that can be in some ways more difficult. Um, so, 
so, but, you know, as I was writing it, I was adding or kind of finishing it. I, I worked in the family and, and yet I still didn't quite know how I wanted it to end. Um, so I, I ended up kind of starting to write more about the increasing impacts on her of this unending anxiety and fear of this toy, but then also kind of constantly keeping this thread alongside the anxiety and fear of self-doubt and shame and questioning, not wanting to bring it to others um, in part because it would make it more real and that's terrifying if, it, if you voice these concerns and they become more concrete, but then also because she was sort of ashamed of it because who is terrified of a toy, you know, like what, what adult person would in their right minds be terrified of a toy. Um, so yeah, so, she, you know, I kind of describe her descent into really like physically and emotionally and mentally just like breaking down under the constant stress of the fear and then also the shame covering up the fear and her inability to talk about it with anyone. Wow. And then as I was writing it, I just, again, I like was hit by this bolt of inspiration that was like, okay, I know exactly how I want to end this. Mm -hmm. um, so if it's okay with you, I mm -hmm. will read the last three paragraphs. How about start the nights of sleepless anxiety? Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Is that where, where you're talking about? Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> Great minds think alike. Great. <laughs> the nights of sleepless anxiety and days of fearful boredom stretched out unending until she could no longer recall what life had been like before her first encounter with the toy monkey. She stopped talking, her voice faded away as she worried about alerting the creature to her whereabouts. To mask her smell, she stopped bathing and refused to change her clothes. The dog still faithfully kept watch by her side, but she no longer meaningfully interacted with anyone else around her. One day, she overheard mention of plans to bring in a psychiatrist to evaluate her for the nearest residential mental health program. At first, she felt relief at the thought of being in a secure, locked ward. But by the end of the day, she knew that those staring, glowing eyes would follow her everywhere. Not even the institution could guarantee her safety. That night, as she tried simultaneously to drift off to sleep and yet remain vigilant to her surroundings, she felt as though she were drowning in helplessness and fear. The incessant presence of those eyes in her mind hadn't gone away, no matter how she tried to shield herself. There was only one thing to do to break free of the prison of her terror. The sudden hadn't yet peeked over the horizon the next morning when the older man's dog started barking at something by the side of the road during their first walk of the day. He couldn't quite see what it was at first in the gray pre-dawn light, but as he approached, he gasped and ran the last few steps. There, half buried in a pile of dead leaves, was the sweet girl he often saw chasing her dog through the field. She lay as though she were tucked into her own cozy bed, a small half smile on her peaceful, cold face. The man turned toward her house, the dread of the news he had to deliver slowing his steps. As he began walking away, he saw a small toy monkey cradled in the girl's arms the same half smile on its face, 
its wide, silvery eyes shining through the twilight. You gave me chills. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! I was like listening. I was like, oh, wait, she's dead. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> no, you, you brought it together that, that, uh, I, I, even like just listening to your description of her anxiety, like <laughs> kind of got my cortisol shooting up a little bit or I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I know these feelings. <laughs> um, yep. I didn't expect. I didn't expect you to go there, though I don't know why I didn't, because um, now, that, now that you've done it, it makes complete sense. Um, I don't know, I just feel, I'm trying to, I'm trying to process what that did to me, <laughs> mm -hmm. in a good way, um, okay. <laughs> in, in a very good way, but I, I it, ca it caught me, and it was very eerie and like really hits on some of like my fears around that kind of what we talked about before of like nobody believing you and you're kind of stuck in your own world and you can't get out of it and it's horrifying and for her the like so you don't say exactly what happens she just she just ends up dead right like are you do you know what happened to her? Well, that's an interesting question. So I actually, um, I was so excited about having, you know, finally brought this to a close. I had Travis read it last night. Um, and he asked me, you know, okay, so does the monkey kill her? Um, and I, you know, I know you and I have talked about, I, I really like ambiguous ends. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or ambiguity. Yes. Um, and I, and for this, you know, rather than I think my, my typical fallback of saying it's just me being lazy, um, <laughs> for me, <laughs> um, you know, I think it was, I, I didn't want, I wanted to leave it unknown because, you know, when you're in, you know, Okay, as someone who experiences anxiety and who has definitely experienced depression and feelings of loneliness or isolation and, and self-doubt, um, it's really hard to maintain, I think, often perspective. And yet, um, sometimes we, you know, other people think that they have a really good sense of perspective of our situation but they don't necessarily. So just because we, it, you know, in, in being in the midst of all of this, don't have the most objective sense of what's going on, doesn't mean that someone else who isn't involved can accurately understand. Oops, sorry, there's, there's Ivy just going on. Oh, is that what? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it doesn't mean that, yeah, that um, someone else can just come in and, and understand exactly what's going on. And so um, as a social worker in the state of Washington, I went through some training regarding suicide, um, detection, management, and prevention. 
And since then, I have looked more into and become more acquainted with both through professional experience and through, um, you know, just sort of like uh, continuing education. I've done more research into suicidal thoughts and into some of these crises that people can experience um, with regard to their mental health. And I think um, we often have a very simplistic way of viewing it as, you know, it's a topic we're really uncomfortable with. Um, but there's been more conversation around the fact that having these thoughts is a valid way for people to feel. There's a reason why people feel that way and why they um, are compelled to take drastic action. Um, and I think for me, this story without, you know, again, it's, it's a story written in fun. Um, I'm not trying to um, create scenarios that force people to deal with some of these really heavy issues. Um, but I think that experience has always kind of in the back of my mind. And for me, it was sort of um, this idea that we, we are never in the head of the person experiencing the crisis. And so we don't know um, how necessary it is for people to be able to take that drastic action, whether it's suicidal ideation or something else that is also drastic. Um, and here with leaving it kind of ambiguous, I didn't want to explicitly state that that's what, sh what happened in this situation, but I do want to leave that, you know, that, um, I wanted to give her some agency, I guess that, yes, it could have been that she went outside and this haunted toy who has been stalking her and driving her to madness killed her, but it could have also been. And, and, you know, I, I had her um, looking peaceful with a half smile tucked in, you know, cozily into this pile of leaves. Maybe she sought out her own, um, her own escape from this interminable situation and whatever release that, that looked like for her um, brought her peace in this case. Yeah, thank you for that explanation. I, I... I felt like that's probably where you were going with it. And I just felt compelled to just ask to see if there was something more there. And um, what I think I really like about this story in terms of not just being a, a horror, you know, um, kind of, um, what's the word? Psychological kind of thriller kind of thing. Like it's, it's more subtle than that because while you're using this creepy monkey as um, as the object that carries this woman into her, you know, living hell. In the end, it's not really about the object at all, right? It's about this this woman's mental health and, and where she is in her life, and might not even have to do anything with this monkey, with this toy. In the end. Um, it's more about this, this world that she's living in and, and the way that she's been trapped in this, in this um, cycle of anxiety and fear. And for whatever reason, she, it was her challenge to go through this and it was her choice to deal with it in the way that she did, whatever you know, actually happened. 
And so that's, that's why I feel like while you started out this project as sort of wanting to do this horror genre style and you definitely hit it on the head, it definitely bleeds into, into your work and your interest and passion around mental health and, and having like this potentially be an open discussion for like people to read of like, you know, I could see this story being read in a college course about suicide or mental health and things like that. And, and really being a, a story to bring up um, content to discuss, uh, especially in our society and how much suicide or mental health is still such a taboo subject. And so I think you did a fantastic job bringing in that story uh, that everyone experiences, like everyone experiences anxiety, everyone experiences depression at some point. It just, I think, depends on the level of, of how much it, it grips them. And uh, I, I applaud you bringing it out in the way you did because it was not crass. It was not exploited. It wasn't superficial. It was really uh, raw and real in so many ways, even if it was talking about this creepy toy monkey. Thanks. I, I really appreciate that. Are you familiar with, um, there's a short story called The Yellow Wallpaper? Uh-uh. So, you know, I'm thinking that I wasn't explicitly referring to it when writing this story, but, you know, hearing you talk about what you experienced with it um, kind of brought this up for me. It's a short story um, from the uh, late 1800s, and it was sort of seen, uh, it's written by a woman, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, um, and it was sort of seen as an early feminist work. Um, so basically, long story short, or short story shorter, I guess, <laughs> in this case, um, there's a woman, her husband is a doctor, and she's experiencing some unnamed or unknown um, delicacy, you know, uh, health condition. Of course, since it's, you know, like the Victorian era, women are being diagnosed right and left with like wandering uteruses and hysteria and all sorts of stuff. So who knows what was actually going on, but basically um, she's moved to um, a house in the country to kind of recuperate and she's in this room with yellow wallpaper and it's all told from her perspective. And basically it's sort of her descent into madness. Um, and I really want you to read it now. Yeah, I'll look come it up. back because I, I feel like I'm not flattering myself that I have written anything nearly as iconic as that piece, um, <laughs> especially considering, you know, the time in which she wrote it. It was really, I think, groundbreaking. Uh -huh. um, but I feel like ha hearing you talk right now, I'm like, oh, I was totally thinking about that story when I was writing this subconsciously. <laughs> Who um, remind me of the author again? Uh, her name is Charlotte Perkins Gilman. There it is. Okay. I just looked it up. So I have it there. Um, that's, it's interesting. And I, and I like that you summed it up where I was unable to, in terms of watching someone spiral down into their own madness. And 
and I know throughout the years, but I especially feel like in the late 1800s, that was like a bigger topic. Like, like Alice in Wonderland was kind of sort of that esque of, of this young woman going through this like weird psychedelic trip. But really it was kind of almost about her, mad, you know, the madness, the mad hatter and all that kind of stuff. So like really looking at the fear around what we see as the negative madness and really how much is it um is it a breakthrough you know and a breakdown and it's a matter of what tools and what support we have to work through it for some people you might not work through it and that might be it but that's the fear that that you won't get out of it that you won't overcome it that it will take you over I feel like that, yeah, go ahead. I, I think one thing I appreciate about the conversation today among um, like a lot of disability justice advocates, you know, so that people have reclaimed the word mad, for example, and, and there are um, people who identify as mad, often with a capital M. And so in contrast to thinking about like, these women in especially like Victorian England or um, or the US around the same time who were in such a repressive society in some ways and like, you know, were um, diagnosed with mental health conditions or physical health conditions just for not fitting into a really narrow definition of what it meant to be a proper woman. And obviously this is all wrapped up in like questions of class and race and other things. But I do appreciate that today you know, a lot of the conversation, people are more open about their experiences. People are talking openly about what it's like to hear voices or experience hallucinations. And not everyone is saying, oh, I, okay, I'll go to a psychiatrist and I want them to just cure me so that I'm like everyone else. There are people who are, who are exploring what it means to live in that, that space that looks different from from what the rest of us experience. Um, and I think for me, what spoke to me with this story is that there's still on a broader societal level stigma about it and this fear that keeps people isolated from one another. Yeah, I agree. And, and the term that I was trying to think of that I've been learning from some of these uh, therapists that are my age, uh, female therapists that are really coming out right now with very progressive ideas of, of healing and what mental health is now is something that they call the dark night of the soul. And for me, that, that could be akin to a descent into quote unquote madness, but really it's how do we allow ourselves to go to rock bottom in order to learn and to heal and then to, you know, reemerge like the Phoenix. And it, it's these, and, and, and on a personal level, that's what I've been going through. I feel like it's, it's this like reinventing of myself, re, refi you know, finding myself again. And in order to do that, I had to go through a lot of like mental health stuff of depression and anxiety and all that stuff to, to remove a lot of the trauma and fear and doubt and insecurities that have overtaken me uh, since I was a child. And so what does it take 
you know, to go down into that deep, dark well uh, in order to, to find oneself and then to emerge again whole. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. And I wonder, um, as you're going through this process, you know, are there things that you are, have accepted will kind of be a constant companion? You know, like I'm thinking in my own experience after having my very first panic attack, it was interesting and difficult to kind of come to terms with, okay, this is a thing that I, that I don't think I will ever be without again in my life. And so what, rather than thinking about what will my life look like after anxiety, it's more adjusting my perspective to look at who am I now with this new aspect of my personality and my mental health makeup? Yeah, I, I wonder, think, are there things mm -hmm. that you experience where, you know, some of these things you will come through on the other side stronger and you will have sort of um, gone through baptism by fire and, and all of that, but there may be some things that um, will not leave you and will be part of who Anna is you know, at least for some period of your life going forward, even once you are feeling like you are maybe in a, a stronger position or a healthier place. Yeah, I think a lot of the concepts that what I'm reading about right now is, is not the fact that like, once you make it through this healing process, you're different and better and you will never struggle again. That's, that's complete bullshit. That's, that's not what it's about. What it's about is, is, a, learning about yourself and who you are and accepting that. And the acceptance piece is the biggest part of like, you are going to have bad days and you're going to have great days. And you know that that will always be the constant. It will always be up and down. The goal is, of course, to, you know, balance as much as you can so that the bad days aren't going to, you know, bring you to your knees necessarily if it happens all the time. But more for me, when I'm having a bad day or I'm having circular thoughts or I'm anxiety driven or whatever that is, it's worse if I fight it. It's worse if I'm in denial that it's happening. It's worse if I don't stop, sit, meditate, process and allow the emotions to take over and then learn why am I feeling this way in the first place? Oh, I'm feeling insecure about this. Okay, so what can I do about that? oh, I can accept that's happening, or oh, I need to talk to somebody, or whatever the case may be. The point is that we are, in our society today, most of us are not given these tools of how to manage ourselves. And so, and, and most of the tools we are giving is, is very shame-based or fear-based. And, and so I'm worse off if I allow myself to go through a shame spiral versus... I'm feeling this feeling that's valid and that's okay. Let's sit with it. How do I move through this and then feel balanced again? So as you're talking about this, you know, I'm thinking, um, and sorry, I feel like maybe this is the episode where I bring in random um, <laughs> references to other things. I'm glad you do because but... my brain won't do it. <laughs> But so, um, you know, I'm thinking about, yeah, this, this girl in this story is definitely experiencing that, that shame cycle that you're talking about. 
And how different would her life be if she had, you know, let's say, um, a, maybe not a Facebook group, but like uh, a chat room or a blog in which people talked about, hey, I'm being stalked by a haunted <laughs> toy. And like other people <laughs> yeah. could share similar experiences with each other. Yes. And it just reminds me of, so there's a play called um, Good Night Desdemona, Good Morning Juliet. And I don't know if you've ever seen it or heard of it or read it, but it's basically, it's, so the conceit is there's this graduate student studying Shakespearean literature and um, her, her thesis topic is that she thinks that Romeo and Juliet and Othello were meant to be comedies, not tragedies, <laughs> but um, somehow at some point the fool that was supposed to be in both of them was left out. And so she ends up getting through like supernatural means um, tossed into a story that is a combination of Romeo and Juliet and Othello. And she ends up playing the part of the fool um, in both stories. And indeed, it turns out that they're both comedies once you have the right fool in place. Yeah. And so I'm thinking of that because it's like, could this story of, you know, horror and terror and shame and fear and stress and anxiety be totally turned on its head if instead of having a fool in place, this girl just had a really great blog or online space to talk about her fear of this haunted toy with other people who've experienced the same or similar things. Yeah, that's really fascinating that you bring that up. And it, it reminds me a lot of uh, sort of the, the Native American uh, um, mindsets and stories especially around the coyote being the trickster which i think is very similar to the fool as well and how often i've been coached by my native mentor and other um native folks that i have like conversed with and talked about t topics on these things and how are you finding the humor in this because where is the trickster playing a trick on you so that you can learn a lesson you know like last night for instance I'm trying to get my cat from stop puking and I've just, I'm an herbalist. I should be able to like help him figure it out, but I've been so unable to be in that headspace that finally I decided I'm going to figure out what herbs cats are allowed, you know, safer cats to take and what is good for GI tract issues. And I looked it up and of course I have all those tinctures. I have all the ingredients that I need. And so I went to go do it. And the first bottle that I was going to use was licorice root. And it was the first bottle I found. I was like, this is exciting. Like I'm on the right track. And then I couldn't get the cap open. <laughs> it wasn't opening. It was, it was stuck. Like, and I, I started getting angry and frustrated. And then I stopped myself and I was like, Oh no, this is hilarious. <laughs> this is really funny. And this isn't the right tincture for him. I put it back and I found something else to put in instead. And they opened the bottle opened immediately and so it was a sort of like idea of the fool and the trickster and where are we getting too serious and that's one of the things my mentor taught me a lot is and like you just yeah go ahead you just know that if you were in some sort of romantic comedy film yeah. there would be like goofy music playing yeah. behind <laughs> you as you're Struggling with this bottle. Yep. And if only you could hear that music in real life, exactly. how might it adjust your thinking in the moment? Exactly. We do need 
uh, a musical score behind us at all times so we know how we're supposed to be feeling. <laughs> totally, totally. No, we had a very similar moment. Um, gosh, probably like three years ago, Travis and I went to go buy a Christmas tree um, in Portland. And we both got kind of stressed out during the process, whatever. We end up tying the Christmas tree to the roof of the car, but also tying the doors shut <laughs> to the car. <laughs> and at the moment, we were both so stressed out and in the moment and in our emotions that we just, like, I remember a little voice in my head saying, like, this could be hilarious, but it was right. just... We were two in the moment, and then I brought it up like a couple weeks ago, and we both had a great laugh. And we were like, "How ridiculous was that? That we like finally got everything in place for this tree, only to find we couldn't get into the car. <laughs> we just needed that music. We needed our soundtrack to tell us exactly. that this was supposed to be a funny, exasperating moment. Exactly. I appreciate that. Uh... <laughs> Yes, laughter, as always, is the best cure. <laughs> Next week, Anna and Hannah bring in the new year. Anna shares an emotional journal entry as she feels the grief of her very first Christmas night alone. Through this emotional time of her divorce, Anna finds a deeper understanding in navigating sorrow and joy. joy. This podcast has been another episode of The Pen Is, with your hosts Anna Bradley and Hannah Binder, and technical support provided by Julia Einersen. Thanks, as always, for spending some time with us as we learn about ourselves as writers and humans. You can find new episodes weekly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. We love hearing from others about their own experiences with writing. Please feel free to email us at annahannapodcast at gmail.com. Until next week, keep that pen busy.